I like this one little chair all by its lonesome here in the front. I was going to be taking the extra chairs out, but no, no, we have to have an extra morning and happy Easter. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. We had an early service this morning. Jared brought the message. Thank you for that. And then if you missed it, breakfast was great as usual. Sheila, where's Sheila? It worked out good. She tried something new. I ate it. It was wonderful. Um, You'll see because of uh, all the services this morning, there's no services today, so you'll have time with your family. Andrea's phone number there for prayer chain, Acts and Facts, and the Free Grace Broadcaster. 
are out on the foyer table uh, for your help. You see the financial note there. And I think that's, I'm not seeing anything else this morning. Did I miss anything? I did not say the bowling thing. What's the date? Okay. And the sign up is on the helps board yeah. out here. Okay. Sign up for bowling May 17th. So we need to know how many. All right. Great. Our scripture for meditation this morning is from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28. Read verses 1 through 10. Let's stand together and open our service in prayer. 
I, I didn't notice, and I guess I'm embarrassed about that, but I hear that Dr. Ed spent the day in the rain out here in the parking lot and got all the gravel out. And that's not an easy job. Oh, the landscape here. Yeah, was doing the landscaping. But it was raining. <laughs> so. Dale, would you open for us today? your brown hymnal this morning and turn to 181, 181 in the brown.
All right, Naomi. <laughs> Fifteen in the purple. Do we know this one, Naomi? Uh, yeah. We have extra purple. Dude, it's behind you. Stand. times. <laughs> uh, sorry, Naomi, I forgot to ask you for the reason for this one. Yes, this one will do that to you. It's a good one to get stuck there. reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be reading 1 through 10. That's 1789 in the Pew Bible. Okay, can we go ahead and stand, please? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel... I preach to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach to you, and so you believed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
stand with the choir and sing number 234 in the brown. 234 in the brown. Our scripture text is 1 Corinthians 15. (laughs) 
This morning I want to talk to you about the gospel of, or the good news of resurrection. I believe it's sometimes missed even by believers just how important the resurrection of Christ is to the Christian hope of eternal life. This is Holy Week and everywhere across our country and throughout the world, emphasis has been given to the death of Christ on the cross for sinners. In Ontario, some years ago, I preached a Good Friday message there at one of the Sovereign Grace churches. And in Canada, the entire country shuts down all commercial enterprise to celebrate Good Friday. That is, by law, Walmart, Kmart, the grocery stores, the manufacturers, and any other enterprise must, get the word, must close. The only stores allowed to be open are gas stations and restaurants. Feed your car, feed your body. And this is to celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus and thus the atonement of his personal sacrifice. But isn't it also true that we, in our thinking and discussion, reflect more on the cross of Jesus than on the open tomb? Is not the cross central in most people's thinking when they contemplate Salvation from sin. Jesus died to save his people from the consequences of their sin. That's what we think and say. But we seldom hear the equally true statement, Jesus was raised to life for our salvation. Maybe this emphasis has to do with the truth that Jesus himself inaugurated an ordinance, the Lord's Supper, specifically designed to make us reflect upon his death. Although resurrection is implied, I mean, Paul tells us, whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which, of course, is a hint that he is alive and coming. So, well, what's your point? Well, I'm not to create another lopsided emphasis by shifting our thoughts to resurrection, but I want to see that the gospel is, it is not good news without resurrection. The gospel is about life as well as about death. It is a gospel about an open tomb as well as about a rugged cross. It's the gospel of anticipation and joy as well as a gospel of sorrow and retrospect. It's a gospel for the present and the future as well as a gospel of the past. And so it's with these things in mind that I direct your thoughts to the opening remarks of Paul's famous treatise on resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter is about resurrection. Now we want to look at three important considerations concerning Jesus' resurrection. Number one, the place of resurrection in the gospel message. Number two, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, and number three, the importance of resurrection for our daily lives as believers. So as we come this morning, 
let's ask for the enablement of the Spirit. Father, send your Spirit to teach us of the resurrection of Christ. It ought not to be that we only think of the resurrection at Easter time each year. I'm so glad, though, that we do have a special holy day that is applicable and designed to remind us of resurrection. But we serve a risen Savior every day of the year, not just one day of the year. And we should reflect upon him, remember his death, yes, but also the fact that there's an open tomb that is associated with that. And if there were no open tomb, there is no salvation. Lord, if you didn't conquer death, we're certainly not going to conquer it. If you were never freed from its entanglements, we're not going to be free from the entanglements. Paul says it's the last enemy that we have to face. If we don't have a champion to face it with us and for us, we are lost. But I pray that you will bless the truths of your word today. Get yourself glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking this morning at this, the subject, the importance of the resurrection of the gospel message. We find this in the first four verses of our text. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, writes Paul, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. First thing we understand is that the doctrine of resurrection was part and parcel to the gospel which Paul preached. Verse 1, linked with verse 2, demonstrates the connection between the gospel Paul preached and the word of God on which the Corinthians believed and took their stand. The gospel I preached to you, verse 1. The word I preached to you, verse 2. Okay, then what was this gospel or word from God which the Corinthians heard, believed, and upon which they took their stand. Verse 3, verse 4. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's kind of evident that the gospel concerns more than the cross of Christ. It's more than a message of redemption. It is more than the story of atonement. The gospel incorporates these things, to be sure, but it also includes the glorious truth of victory over death and the grave. It declares the triumph of an open tomb. There's no suggestion here 
that resurrection is somehow inferior to the death and the burial of Christ. Observe here from verse 2 that this gospel of resurrection preached by Paul, believed on by the Corinthians, was the gospel by which people, he says, are saved. The gospel which saves is the gospel of resurrection as well as the gospel of crucifixion. So that makes the resurrection more than an afterthought. Rather, it makes the resurrection central to salvation, not incidental. The resurrection, then, is part and parcel of the good news of the gospel. And I would go so far as to say that without the resurrection, the gospel loses its good news status. This is essentially what Paul says in verse 17. If Christ, his words, if Christ has not been raised, then what? Well, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That sounds to me like it's very, very serious. I mean, think about it. Still in my sins, still condemned before God, still marked as a rebel God-hater, still defiant to my Creator while believing that all is well with my soul? That's horrendous. Why is it horrendous? Because it is a, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 verse 31. The God, David affirms, you perceive my thoughts, you, you see them from afar, you're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Psalm 139, verse 3 and following. Boy, I'm not going to get away with anything with God. If that's the case, if he knows my thoughts before I speak of them, before I verbalize them there's no way I can snow God (laughs) all the truths which comprise the gospel occurred verse 3 verse 4 according to the scriptures this is a little phrase with a huge meaning some have ignored it altogether and And in doing so, they've glossed over the supreme authority for these teachings. Namely, that God himself and what he has declared himself says, I believe in the Bible was written by men. Oh, no, it wasn't. If you believe that, you can choose to be ignorant if you want to be. But Peter says, verse 5, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Oh, and by the way, John says in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. In the case of Peter himself, he admits about Jesus. Let me read it for you. We did not follow cleverly invented stories 
when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves, says Peter, heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Second Peter 1, verse 16 and following. So what is Peter saying? He's saying we were eyewitnesses and we were ear witnesses. Eye and ear witnesses of this Christ. Let me ask the question, are these, not, are these not the most reliable sources of what happened in any search for the truth? If someone says, well, I was an eyewitness, or I was an ear witness. Men will believe, they will believe the writings of the philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, who simply wrote down their philosophies, Right? Why can people not believe the eye and ear witnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ written by the very disciples that lived with him and worked with him for three years? The scripture is the word of God about his son, Jesus, and the events which his disciples saw and heard in the three years that they were with him. Now they were just as amazed, just as dumbfounded, just as taken aback by the miracles and teachings of Jesus as any in our day. But they were there. They saw these things firsthand. I think we would do well to believe their testimony. Paul states in our text that These three doctrines, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, are what he received and passed on. He didn't invent these things. He says these things are of first importance, namely that Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead just as the scriptures had foretold would happen. No other religion in the world presents us with a Savior who meets these three works of redemption. A substitute to stand in and pay the penalty of sin for all who believe. Number two, one who truly died and was buried, succumbed to the penalty of sin, which is the wages of sin is death. So he died. And then number three, raised on the third day, no longer held bound by the grave, but victorious over it. And this is why Peter, in explaining how the lame man was healed by he and John when they were arriving at the temple, put it this way, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man 
stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name. Not Allah, not Muhammad, not Hare Krishna, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Mother Mary, not Joseph Smith of the Mormons, not any prophet of the past or guru of the present, not even the Jesus you think is still dead. None of them are saviors. The Bible knows of only one savior, and that is Jesus the Christ, God's anointed one and only son, who's no longer bound by the chains of death. Now I want you to consider these three doctrines all documented in the scripture. Number one, Christ died for our sins. You know, many religious leaders have died through history. They have. Confucius, Buddha, Mohammed, more recent days, Joseph Smith, Jim Jones, David Koresh. So there's nothing, nothing unusual about religious people, religious leaders dying. Paul does not simply say Jesus died. But he says he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. This, then, is not just death as it comes to all men, nor is it a statement about martyrdom, a man who, uh, who, whose death is designed to take uh, his own life as though he were committing some kind of suicide. No, Jesus' death has benefits which accrue to those whom Jesus represents. Paul tells it simply, he died for our sins. The concept of substitution is dominant. Jesus dies for others. The concept of redemption is also present. He dies for our sins. So a payment is being made to God to placate God's wrath upon us for our sins. Why, why so? Because God has said, the soul that sins shall die. That's why. That's the penalty. So I ask the question, who constitutes the all-or, O-U-R, for whom Christ died? When he says he died for our sins. Well, in context, it would be the Corinthians plus Paul, Right? But is that all? I mean, it's certainly more is intended because Paul talks about this as part of the gospel message. He preached everywhere, verse 1, a gospel to be received and upon which people are to take their stand, verse 1, a gospel that issues in people being saved if they believe, verse 2. So Jesus did not just die for the population of Corinth, plus Paul, but for all believers who receive and respond in faith to the gospel message. 
So this is not wholesale, indiscriminate, universal atonement here, as though all men are saved just because Jesus died. No, this is a redemption applicable to those only who receive it and believe it and take their stand upon it. Some reading a text like this would say something like this. Well, we can say that Jesus died for all men, but the benefits are only applied to those who believe. Well, I can just say categorically that it's not a biblically accurate description of atonement. The salvation of God is not accidental. It is on purpose as is evident from specific prophecies which explain the recipients of Jesus' work. It's the difference between believing that Christ died simply to provide salvation for people and believing that Christ actually procured salvation for people. Paul tells us Christ died for our sins. He actually paid For sins, real people with real sins. What I'm saying is there's no no such thing as a blood spilt but unapplied. Just sitting out there, kind of like in a blood bank, for people to tap into if and when they will. If the atonement were universal, then salvation would be universal. But the Bible only attributes salvation to those who repent and believe and to none else. And what is more, the Bible is clear that those for whom Christ died will be saved, will be saved. It's not in the if-if category at all. John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, said Jesus. And he goes on, the next verse, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Now you put those two thoughts together. All that the Father gives me will come, okay. But then the next thought, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. So all that the Father gives will come, and all that come, I will save. Sounds like a sealed door to me. Done deal. Listen to Jesus' words to the Jewish leaders who opposed him. Did he say, I'm being facetious here. You are not my sheep because you do not believe in me. No, that's not what he said. You are not my sheep because you do not believe in me. That's the way we read it. But what he said is, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, 
and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So we're back to a question that goes like this, and you've heard it. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, belief, then becoming a sheep, or becoming a sheep, and then belief? Well, Jesus explains that it is the latter. Our faith is part of being a sheep of Christ by his miracle of grace. And it is to the sheep that Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep, John 10, verse 15. None of this, then, is left to chance or to the fickle finger of fate. God the Father has a people. He's given his son to die for them. He gives these people to his son to save and to keep them and to grant them eternal life and the promise of resurrection. Now let me give you some scriptures on this so you have some bases other than my say-so. Isaiah 53. What a wonderful scripture is Isaiah 53. Isaiah writes, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. Now again, it's a lot of Identity here, our, 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 and then he says, we, our, 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 we. Who are these ours? Who are these we's to whom Isaiah references? Verse 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. To whom the stroke was due. My people? Does that phrase, my people, mean every last person on the earth? Or does that sound more exclusive? Read on, verse 11, Isaiah 53. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. And be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify what? The many. And he will bear their iniquities. <coughs> Verse 12. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Think about the thieves on the cross. For he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Now if the words of scripture mean anything, Isaiah 53 clearly foretells that Jesus, as the suffering servant of Jehovah, would be sacrificed for those who would become the people of God by repentance and faith. It's not a universal atonement. It's particular redemption. Many sinners will be saved, but not every last sinner. 
on the face of the earth. Now that's prophecy. What's the fulfillment? Well, for that, we have to go to the New Testament. How about the words of Jesus himself? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, get it now, many. Matthew 20, verse 28. Not every last person, but for many. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, said, He, referring to Jesus, He was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Chapter 4, verse 25. The writer of Hebrews says, Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear the second time not to bear sin, but to those who eagerly await him for salvation. And Peter actually quotes Isaiah 53, and he applies it to his readers this way. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Paul, writing to Titus, states, Looking for and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now see, all of these scriptures testify that the death of Jesus was to pay the debt of sin for specific people. Not a small group, by the way. But for all who, in hearing the gospel, receive it and believe it and repent of their sin. Say, what's your point? My point is that the atonement is not just sitting out there in spiritual cyberspace, awaiting people to kind of tap into it if and when they want to. No, Jesus had a, he had a face, and he had a name. He had a unique identity in mind for every person for whom he died. He said, where are you getting this stuff? Revelation 17, verse 8. In that verse, John tells us that the names, the names of those destined for salvation are written, written down in the Lamb's book of life and they've been written there from the time of the creation of the world. Oh God, God, how could he do that? How could he write people's names in a book before time? Well, he's the author of time. He's the author of all the events that go on in time-space history. Now think about this. A name, a name, that's a personal mark of identification 
that belongs only to you. Think of it. If you were to make reservations for a very exclusive restaurant, the first thing the maitre d' would ask you is, well, what's your name? Why would he ask that? Because you are not going to get a table in this exclusive restaurant unless you have one reserved for you. Your name identifies who you are. John Smith would likely have to have a middle name that zones in on one person of the Smith category. John Richard Smith of Lapeer, let's say. That's just on the human level, right? An exclusive restaurant. Well, God has a book of life that identifies by name every person for whom Christ died. And when the final tally is made in the day of judgment, not one person will be missing from the names written there. That's how personal your salvation is. Yet I affirm that the Bible affirms there is no color blindness or prejudice with God. We know that. John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. Revelation 7 verse 9. So what is he saying? Those for whom Christ died consist of all types of people, all races, all nationalities, both sexes. God calls his people from men and women and boys and girls of every ethnos, every nationality. The redeemed includes black people and white people and males and females and nobles and ignoble and educated and ignorant and backward people and civilized people. God shows no favoritism. He saves whom he wills and he wills and is thankful he returns none away that call upon him. Christ died for his people. Secondly, Christ was buried for us, Paul says. Now, why would Paul mention burial? Well, it serves two purposes. Number one, firstly, burial confirms the finality of death. I mean, think about it. We bury people whom we know to be devoid of life's breath. As long as people are still breathing, I mean, they can be in a hospital bed, very sick, running high fevers, their flesh, but if their flesh is warm and their breath is still there, 
We don't bury them. Sometimes, and I've seen this, hospital, hospital personnel will hold a mirror up to a person's face. Why? Because their breath is so shallow, so iffy, The people in the hospital can't tell if they're dead or alive. So they hold a mirror up to their nostrils, and if it fogs up, they know the person is still breathing. Well, that's simple. Jesus had a tomb, but it was not the lost tomb of the filmmaker Cameron whose most notable film was the Titanic, but Cameron bought into the pseudo-scientific archaeological opinion of Jewish-born, Jewish-born, Simka Jebrakovich, who claimed that the names inscribed on bone boxes called ossuaries that he found, he found the name Jesus on these bone boxes. And he found the name Joseph on the bone boxes. And he found the name Mariana on the bone boxes. And he says, see, that proves that this tomb that I opened up is the tomb of the Holy Family. Jesus is dead. We got his bones. Well, in actuality, that tomb was discovered 30 plus years ago through researchers by archaeologists and theologians alike, all of them experts, all of them digging into that whole find and concluding the following. Number one, the family buried in that tomb consisted of an ordinary middle-class Jewish family who had money. Number two, the bones alleged to be those of Jesus of the Bible evidence that that person had not, had not died by way of crucifixion. Number three, the name Mariana is different from the name Mary. Number four, the location of the tomb doesn't match the historical records of the gospel. And number five, what is more, DNA testing is fruitless without a baseline with which to compare it. You need a hair, you need a piece of tissue, you known to belong to the Jesus of Nazareth in order to make such a statement. So I ask the question, why then all the hype? We seem to go through this every once in a while. Well, it's nothing more than the ongoing saga of Hollywood trying to cash in on the fictitious Jesus, you know, The Last Temptation of Christ, that movie, uh, The Da Vinci Code, uh, another fictitious account. Well, let me tell you, if you want to read about the real burial of Jesus, it's in Isaiah 53, verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was assigned to go to the criminal burial ground. Yet, go on, I'm reading on in that verse. Yet, it was, his death was, with a rich man in his death. Okay, so he's a poor carpenter. He doesn't have any wealth. 
So he's going to go in the common graves that they have for poor people, as far as the Jewish authorities are concerned, get him off the cross and dump him in the mass grave just outside the city called Gehenna. Oh, but the scripture says, prophesy, he was to be buried with a rich man in his death. Well, the fulfillment of that is found in Matthew 27, verse 57 and following. An evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, that's the governor, he asks for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Well, wonder of wonders. Joseph took the body, placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. 